Okay, now, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Great God, we give you thanks once again. You ask us to give you thanks. You say it to us over and over again in your book of the Psalms to give thanks, that giving thanks is more important than the sacrifices we might offer. Help us to be better at that. Help us to be truly thankful. Open up our hearts to all the reasons we have to be thankful so that those thanks come from the heart. Help us now in our study today. May your spirit be the true teacher. In the strong name of Christ, amen. Well, last week we got started with Psalm 1 and with Psalm 100. And we mentioned that the Psalms are poetry and that in ancient times, in the Near East anyway, poetry was always sung. There was always a musical aspect to it. And it was done, as far as we can tell, at least very often, if not always, with instruments as well. So I thought it would be good for us uh, today, in addition to just looking at the Psalms themselves, to see some of the ways songs are used in our, our churches. And I'd like to start with something that we call metrical psalmody. Now, metrical implies meter. That's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
ideally to include all 150 of the Psalms turned into metrical poetry. Bourgeois was one of the men who was doing that, so we know right away that there is a great heritage about this particular piece of music. <clears throat> um, it's called Old Hundredth. So right away, you know there's a connection with this tune to the Hundredth Psalm. Now, this isn't the Hundredth Psalm. This is uh, a... Uh, uh, a text based on, oh, I, I, it's cut off here. Psalm 117 is actually the psalm uh, that we, well, I didn't, That's yeah, it. there it is, 17, thank you. That was easily solved. All right, so uh, we have a tune here that we know as the doxology. Dun, 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 praise God from whom all blessings flow. So there's a different texts you see right off the bat that, that get uh, used with this tune. In this case, Psalm 117, somewhere along the line, probably in the old Genevan Psalter that Calvin worked out uh, way back when, uh, it was the 100th Psalm, probably, in that instance. All right? But notice how there's one note for every syllable, from, all, that, dwell. Then below has two syllables, so that there's two notes for below. Okay, one note of music for every syllable. All right? So here is... Uh, well, this is what I should have done in a minute because I had blown it up and forgot. So you, you can see all that very clearly now. Uh, Four-part texture, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. But in Calvin's Geneva, you didn't sing four-part harmony. You only sang the melody. And you didn't have any instrumental accompaniment whatsoever. At whatsoever There was in the Reformed tradition of psalm singing, well, in their whole concept of worship, what they called the regulative principle, which means that if you can't find it in the New Testament, if you cannot find that worship was done that way in the New Testament, if you can find no commandment in the New Testament about worship, then we have no business doing that in worship. So worship was limited, and it's why worship in the Calvinist tradition was so plain, so basic and simple compared to what Luther was doing in the Lutheran part of the Reformation, because the Calvinists were restricting themselves to what you read in the New Testament about how to do worship. And Calvin would say, you, you can't find anything in the New Testament about using instruments in church. Nothing wrong with instruments. And if you want to do a psalm in four-part harmony with instruments at home, that is a good and righteous thing to do. But not in church. The Bible doesn't say anything about that in church. So uh, that is a tradition that was handed on among Reformed people, among Presbyterians. I taught for many years at Erskine Theological Seminary, a seminary run by the uh, associate Reformed 
Presbyterian Church, a smaller denomination of Presbyterians. They instituted their first hymnal in 1948. 1940, centuries after John Calvin. They were psalm singers. No instruments in church. This is an important tradition, and uh, in part because we do sing some of the hymns, uh, 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 some of the translations. Of course, they had to be retranslated in England. The Puritans had their translation of metrical psalters. The Puritans were strongly influenced by John Calvin. So we are inheritors today of a number of ways of doing the Psalms musically. And the great gift to us from the Reformed tradition is the ability to sing a good part of a psalm, however much has been turned into a poem, uh, to be able to sing the psalms without having to chant them like uh, you might see in a, in a Catholic church or an Episcopal church, or even ours to a certain extent at certain times, and we could do more of that here. So here's a, another way where everybody can do the psalm through this process of metrical psalmody. Any questions about any of that? Yeah. This question is really going to annoy all musicians in the room because I are not one. But when I see... Stuff like that without eight notes and notes with flags on mm -hmm. and all this. To me, that's plain chant, is it? It might have been derived from plain chant. Among the Calvinists, it would not have been. Uh, and also, <laughs> while this one is very plain rhythmically, some of them get to be right, uh, right rhythmic. There's one tune that was in the Genevan Psalter that went like this. Comfort, comfort ye my people, speak ye peace, thus saith their God. So they weren't afraid to get a little jazzy uh, some of the times. Just so long as you didn't use any instruments with it. That's good. Okay? Pushing on. <clears throat> now there are different meters that are involved, and this is true in our hymnal right here. Uh, there are three basic meters. Notice that it says uh, LM there at the top of the page. Aren't there cigarettes that used to be called L and M's? I, I, always, I always think of that. <laughs> All right, LM means long meter. All people that on earth do dwell, our doxology, has a pattern of four lines with eight syllables in each line. Let's check it out. All people that on earth do dwell. Eight. Sing to the Lord with cheerful, two syllables, voice. Him serve with fear, his praise forth tell. Eight. Come ye before him and rejoice. Eight, all right? Now, we call that long meter because there was a more common meter that was used by these folks. Uh, not just the Genevans, who actually used very complicated meters. 
Uh, but in England, the Puritans uh, really used these. And it was the Puritans who came to America and was the beginning of our psalm singing tradition in America. And in time, the Anglicans picked up on it and started singing psalms this way as well. The most common is common meter, 8686. The most famous common meter example is Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Six this time. I once was lost, but now was found. Eight was blind, but now I see. Six, all right? So there's a long meter, a common meter, and a short meter. So when the people who were writing these uh, metrical songs were deciding I think I'll do a version of Psalm 148. First thing they had to decide is which meter am I going to use? So they would make a decision which one they wanted to use, and then they had their pattern, and they would go verse by verse and try to stay as close as they could to what the Bible said. Remember, these are folks who take the Bible really seriously, and they think that worship should only be something very closely related, either warranted by scripture or actual scripture itself. So take a look at this now for a minute and compare. All people that on earth do dwell is the metrical psalm. And here is Psalm 100, verse by verse. Just take a moment and see the connection between the two. How well did our writer do in preserving the actual meaning of this and turning it into a multiverse <clears throat> poem? Just take a little time to look at that. You could take a lot of time with it, but I, that's enough for you to get an idea of it. Not bad, huh? One of the problems is this. You want to stay as close to the Bible as you possibly can, and you want to have good poetry. You don't want it to sound like some hack wrote all this stuff. But you want to stay really close to the Hebrew. But it's got to be good Good, good music and good poetry, but it's got to stay close. And they're back and forth between these two problems. So we often end up with kind of fractured syntax, sentences that don't go quite logically. Approach with joy his courts unto. Well, we don't really talk that way. That's kind of a messed up syntax in that sentence. And you can find examples of that. Sometimes uh, the syntax is fractured pretty badly in some of these Psalters. And so there were a lot of Psalters because different people decided, I'm going to see if I can do better. I'm going to study my Hebrew and I'm going to study literature and poetry and see if I can't find a better version of it than this. 
So there were quite a few Psalters that came across with the pilgrims to the United States and were the ones that were used in America. Any thoughts or questions about that? We have uh, more of these in our hymnal than you might think. And uh, you might want to check and see for yourself. All right. So what's the meter of this metrical psalm? See if you can figure it out. You know, it's got to be four phrases. So there's going to be two phrases on the top line and two phrases on the bottom line. Heard short meter from one person. It's common, common. common meter. Well, let's find out. It's common meter. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. Eight. He makes me down to lie. Six. In pastures green, leadeth me. The quiet waters by. Eight six eight six. A common meter. So why, why did they, what was the main reason they did this? They wanted, to, they wanted to sing songs. What are we going to sing in church? But they didn't have we can't words. sing hymns of human composure because you can only sing God's own words in worship. That's all that's worthy for God. That's how they thought. We have to sing <coughs> songs. Well, we can't chant like those Catholics do. Besides, how would we ever get the whole congregation to do it? So we have to turn it into a simple poetic format that's repetitious so we can get a simple tune here and repeat the tune verse after verse. So did the Catholics use instruments? Oh yes. So they were in competition in a way. They tried to have their the Catholics own. didn't do this in church. They did it at, I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear. This was kind of a fad in the courts uh, of the, uh, the kingly courts in Paris. You know, uh, among not courts in in the civil sense, but the royal court of the king. I went to a school and we did lots of chanting, and you didn't. It was like you could relax. You didn't have to know the tune. Mm-hmm. You got that sing-songy thing going, right. or whatever meter. But when you did it during the week, you'd start doing it. It's like advertising on TV, and you started realizing you were singing without somebody telling you to memorize them because of that. So it helped people that couldn't sing very well in period two mm-hmm. grasp onto scripture yes. and bring it through their week. Mm-hmm. These did the same thing. People used to stand out on the street corners with a large piece of paper called a broadside on which these were written down and you can find a group of people standing on the street corner singing psalms in Calvin's Geneva. So how's that different than chanting? This, what you're chanting has no rhythm and has no meter. So how would you say the same thing uh, in your voice without the same song and meter? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. But you can do that because you have the training of the belly of the average guy on the street. I think it's easier to do the other one, but it's a chance. Well, yeah, it is. 
And if I asked you all to do what I just did, it's not going to work out very well. So if you want everybody to be involved in worship, and that was one of the big things with all the reformers, we need to get the congregation actively involved in, in, in the worship service. And this is the way they did it. Not the way the Lutherans did it, but it's the way the whole reformed group did. Now, Hebrew poetry whole different, and this relates to what you were talking about. Uh, let's talk about something very different now, even if it is seemingly the same subject of poetry. Western poetry, as we just saw, rhymes sounds. All right, we know that. You have a phrase, and then the next phrase has to rhyme with what you had in the first phrase. Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. Hebrew poetry throughout the Middle East, ancient Middle East rhymes ideas. One of the great gifts of the Lord God to us is that the Psalms were written in Hebrew. That means you can translate them into any language you want to, and you don't have to change much of anything because you don't have to worry about meter, you don't have to worry about rhymes. The way it's written, the way it, uh, as I'm gonna show you, the way your rhyming ideas comes across in any language. It's one of the great gifts to the world. This rhyming of ideas is called parallelism. Parallelism. So what am I talking about? Let's take a look at Psalm 103, the first verse. There's two phrases in the first verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Second phrase, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Well, you see there's a parallel structure going on here. We've said, bless the Lord, and then we said, bless his holy name. We said, oh, my soul, and then we said, all that is within me. So what have you learned here that you hadn't already said there? It's the same thing. You, you phrased it differently, but you've repeated yourself, all right? It's a parallel structure. It's called synonymous parallel for obvious reasons. This is a synonym to this. It says the same thing, means the same thing. That's one kind of Hebrew poetry. Second time, second kind is called antithetic. And again, when you look at anti, you get the idea where it's gonna be about opposites. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteousness but, you always know it's going to be antithetical when you see that word but, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Antithetical. But it's one verse. It's one verse in two parts. There's a parallelism going on within each verse. And that's Hebrew poetry. That's what they do. They think of a phrase, and then they think, now I'm going to say something that's either similar or maybe the opposite, or maybe I'm going to be a little more specific. Now, here's a poem that comes from an odd place, first chapter of Genesis. Did you know there was poetry in Genesis chapter 1? And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. That's synonymous parallelism. 
But the verse goes on. Male and female created he them. Oh my. Now, what is it about the image of God? Well, something about male and femaleness gets involved there. That's new information. So you have here a double parallelism. First is a synonymous one, and the second is what we call a synthetic parallelism, where the parallel line is more specific, gives you more information than the first one. There's a fourth kind, and we call it, I don't know why, but we call it emblematic. I should say they call it. I would have come up with better terms than this, but <laughs> this is what they call it, emblematic. It uses a metaphor or a simile. Similes, you can always tell because of the word as. As a deer longs for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts after God. God is as my rock and my defender. So that's called <coughs> emblematic, or a metaphor, or a simile use of poetry. So there's these four. Now, how deeply do you want to go into this? Do you want it to be a college course? Well, we can take the next two months and talk about all of this poetic stuff. That's as far as I'm going to go. These are the four main kinds of parallelism that you find in the Psalms. And you can pick any psalm you want to, and you can easily find that most of the psalm has one of these four things, or in the psalm, all of those things. So let's take a look at a few and see how we do here. Which kind of parallelism? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Clearly antithetical. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law, he meditates day and night. Ah, some say synthetic, and some say synonymous. It all depends how you want to interpret it. The delight, how is he delighting? Well, he's meditating day and night. The law of the Lord in that law. So is this just the same thing as that? Or is this more detailed than that? You, you make it. You know, this is not something that the Lord told us. There are these four kinds of parallelism. And if you get it wrong, it's a bad thing. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Number three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. Yeah, that's synthetic. You get more information here than you had up there. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I go with synonymous too. I, I think it's pretty much the same thing. Treating us, repaying us, as our sins deserves our iniquities. Pretty close. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his love toward us. There's the word as. We know it's going to be a simile or a metaphor. You get the idea? Oh, that's such a different world from what we were just talking about with the Genevan Psalter, where it's turned into Western poetry. 
Now we're dealing with the kind of poetry that is inherent to the scriptures themselves. Well, so much on that. Let's, let's talk about a few general things and hopefully get into at least one of the Psalms today. Oh, but let me stop. Do you have any questions or comments about any of that? Bear in mind, where does the parallelism occur within each Within each verse, all right? So, we've talked about this briefly, but uh, let's talk about it just a bit more. If you look in your Bibles, you will find every now and then as a heading, book two, book three, book four, book five. Uh, 42, for instance, if you have your Bible with you, if you turn, turn to Psalm 42, you'll probably see that it says book two. I can't guarantee that every translation is going to put it there, but most will have it there. Book three begins page 73, book four begins at 90, and book five begins at 107. Why? What, what, what are these five books all about? Well, we don't know for sure. But there are some, at least my, the way I was taught, was that uh, they're possibly divided in to, to go with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Right? Maybe kind of a lectionary during the uh, readings in synagogue or temple uh, when they were in uh, the book of Genesis, they would tie in with the first book of the Psalms. They got to Exodus, book two of the Psalms. So there were these assigned readings, perhaps. We do know that they used lectionaries. And by the way, what's a lectionary? A roadmap. A roadmap, that's true. A little more specifically. <laughs> Suggested daily readings. I'm sorry? Suggested daily readings. Suggested daily readings. You can have an annual Lectionary, so that you get through a significant portion of the Bible in one year. Uh, when I was Presbyterian, we had a three-year lectionary. So there was cycle A, cycle B, cycle C that got you through a whole lot more scripture that way. So uh, that's the idea of a lectionary, and there are different traditions and different lectionaries that exist uh, within denominations and in different periods of time. They sometimes come out with new lectionaries. So that's that's a suggestion. Brother Paul, do you have any other ideas about that? About lectionaries? Well, or about the, the, the five books of the Psalms. No, sorry. I don't have any new, I don't have new information. We do have a lectionary in the, there, there's two sort of lectionaries in the Book of Common Prayer. The first is to take you through morning and evening prayer throughout the year, and that will get you through roughly the scriptures as a whole through one year. And then there's also what you call the lectionary, which are the proffers for each Sunday. If all you do is come to church on Sunday, you're only going to get about 6% of the whole Bible, or 10%. The idea is that the offices are also being dug into. So that's why the, the three-year lectionary comes out, is, is the idea, you know, if people are only coming on Sunday, well, we got to get more than that, so they put it into three years. Yeah. A couple of different philosophies on how to use a lectionary. 
And there's nothing stopping you from taking a prayer book home and using it in your daily devotions. Probably a pretty good idea. All right. We have a fair amount of time yet. I want to spend a lot of time in Psalm 73. It's one of the lesser known psalms, uh, but I think it's a very poignant psalm. And I think we need to point out that the psalm that is the first in each of the books is a special psalm. And that's why it's the first in that particular book. The last psalm in each book is very often a doxology of praise. Psalm 73, the first psalm in book three. And it's the first of 11 psalms attributed to Asaph. Now, who is Asaph? I wouldn't have known this either, ever, except that I had to teach worship at a college and you learn these things. Um, but I'm not explaining it yet. I'll explain it later. He's one of the three people that David uh, chose to develop the musical aspects of temple worship. That's basically who he is. So the psalm attributed to Asaph, it says a psalm of Asaph, perhaps, in your Bibles. Does that mean he wrote it? Does that mean it's in the Asafian tradition? <laughs> Is it there because it's dedicated to Asaph? We don't know. But we do see that there is that inscription at the beginning of the psalm. All right, now this is, again, I don't know if you can even begin to read that where you're sitting. But I don't want to dissect this until we have heard it all the way through and taken some time with it. So I'm going to read this whole psalm. And you can follow along in your own Bibles or if you want to follow this. Uh, this is one of the few times. Uh, I think I've, I've, this is from the Book of Common Prayer as well. I tried to use uh, our, our, own, uh, our own psalm to do that we use on Sundays as much as possible. All right. Let's get into a spirit of uh, meditation and reverence. And let's hear this entire song. Truly, God is loving to Israel, even unto such that are of a clean heart. Nevertheless, my, my feet were almost gone. My treadings had well nigh slipped. And why? I was grieved at the wicked. I do also see the ungodly in such prosperity. For they are in no peril of death. They're lusty and strong. They come in no misfortune like other folk. Neither are they plagued like other men. And this is the cause that they're so holden with pride and cruelty covereth them as a garment. Their eyes swell with fatness, and they do even what they lust. They corrupt other and speak of wicked blasphemy. Their talking is against the Most High, for they stretch forth their mouth unto the heaven, and their tongue goeth through the world. Therefore, Fall the people unto them, and thereout stuck, suck they no small advantage. Tush, they say, 
How should God perceive it? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Lo, these are the ungodly. These prosper in the world, and these have riches and possession. And I said, then have I cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. All the day long have I been punished and chastened every morning. Yea, and I had almost said, even as they... But lo, then I should have condemned the generation of thy children. Then thought I'd understand this, but it was too hard for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood the end of these men. Namely, how thou dost set them in slippery places, and castest them down, and destroyest them. Oh, how suddenly do they consume, perish, and come to a fearful end. Yea, even like as a dream when one awaketh, so shalt thou make their image to vanish out of the city. Thus, my heart was grieved, and it went even through my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, even as it were a, a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am always by thee, for thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou, hast, thou shalt guide me in thy counsel, and after that receive me with glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire in comparison of thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that forsake thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that are unfaithful unto thee. But it is good for me to hold me fast by God, to put my trust in the Lord God, and to speak of all thy works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. That's a remarkable poem. I don't know of any other poems quite like it, any other psalms quite like it. Well, let's think about that. I think we'll spend more than just the rest of today on this psalm. But let's talk about some of the things we've been working on. Parallelism. What's the parallelism of that first verse? Truly God is loving to Israel, even unto such as are of a clean heart. Which one do you think? Do you remember? Synthetic? That's what I would say. Yeah. The second phrase gives additional information. What about Israel? Well, these are the folks that have a clean heart. How about this? Nevertheless, my feet were almost gone. My treadings had well nigh slipped. 
I'm sorry? Synonymous. Does the second phrase simply repeat the first? Or does it provide added insights? My feet were almost gone. My treadings had well nigh slipped. You could argue well nigh slipped tells you how they were gone. So maybe that uh, falls into the synthetic category. Again, we don't have to agree on this. But we have to be aware we're reading parallelisms if you want to understand what's going on here. What type of parallelism is this? For they are in no peril of death, but are lusty and strong. There's the antithetical, all right? Two extreme opposites. Peril of death, lusty and strong. Antithetical. Here's what Ambrose of Milan says about this. He is surely not speaking of bodily feet, but of the uprightness of the heart and of the step. And so we ought always to ask that the Lord may direct the footsteps of our spirits, else they may fall, slip in a kind of morass of error and be unable to maintain their firm hold. This psalm poses the question that uh, is on everybody's mind all the time. The, the big issue. Why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? The rich get richer, the poor get poor. It always rains the hardest on people who deserve the sun. You, you can pick your kind of cynicism uh, that, uh, that speaks to you of it. There's many, many psalms that deal with this issue. Uh, and how many times, in one way or another, have you and I asked that very question, or at least noticed it going on in the world? Um, we'll be doing a study of the men, uh, Lord willing, uh, in, the, in the fall. Uh, I'm planning on a study on the book of uh, Job. And it's the big question in the book of Job as well. Well, let's look in a little more detail here. Truly, God is loving to the, unto Israel, even unto such as are of a clean heart. Nevertheless, my feet were almost gone. My treadings had well nigh slipped. What strikes you here? What's the uh, situation of the psalm writer? Doubt. Doubt, I'll say. Why are his feet slipping? Why did he almost, why were they almost gone? But did he? No, no. no. This is a psalm about somebody who, thanks to God and, and God's spirit, uh, becomes aware of an attitude adjustment that needs to happen. And fortunately, he doesn't fall flat on his face before he sees the mistake of his thought process. So we're told right off the bat, 
something good about God, considering all the complaining, he kind of gives the summary of the whole psalm in the beginning. Truly, God is loving to Israel. He didn't sound that way in verse 10. He didn't sound that way in verse 15. But when we got to the end of the poem, he was there. And it's how he starts here in the very beginning. God is loving unto Israel, to those who are of a clean heart. But his heart wasn't so clean. And a matter of fact, he almost landed in disaster. And why? Well, he gives you the answer, clear and simple. I was ticked off. (laughs) I, I was grieved at the wicked. I do also see the ungodly in such prosperity. Oh, my word, where have we heard it before? For they're in no peril of death. They're lusty and strong. They come in no misfortune like other folk. Neither are they plagued like other men. And this is the cause that they are so holden with pride and cruelty covereth them as a garment. What's the insight here? This is the cause. What's the cause for this situation? Why are the ungodly this way? Because they are so holden with Pride. How many of you have heard before that pride is the chief among sins? <laughs> and what else? Not just pride, but cruelty. Doesn't that sound like just about every prophet you've ever read in the Old Testament dealing with the pride of Israel, dealing with the oppression of Israel uh, toward the, especially the poor, the widow, and those sorts? Their eyes swell with fatness, and they do even what they lust. Or as it says in the end of the book of Judges, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Increasingly, the, the culture is post-Christian. And so what we're left with is what seems right in our own eyes. What other, what other source of morality is there to consider? You have your truth, and I have my truth. Uh, I'm intrigued with Job chapter 21, jumping ahead a little bit to a book that I'll be dealing with. Some of us will be dealing with. Why do the wicked live on? growing old and increasing in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet, they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? This passage could be tucked neatly right into Psalm 73, and it wouldn't seem out of place at all. Here's what Ambrose of Milan 
continues to say, uh, starting with the quote we already read, he is surely not speaking of bodily feet, but of the uprightness of the heart and of the step. And so we ought always to ask, oh, here's, here's the advice now. Don't miss this. This is Ambrose's advice. Do I do this? Do you do this? We ought always to ask that the Lord may direct the footsteps of our spirits, else they may fall, slip in a kind of morass of error, and be unable to maintain their firm hold. It almost happened to the psalmist, and he knew it. My feet had almost slipped. Going on with the quote, one who is in sin abounds in worldly prosperity and success. Seeing this, one who is stronger laughs. That's something for us to, to gauge our own spiritual strength. Ambrose says, if, you, if you're strong enough in the faith, you see what's going on in the world, and you can just laugh derisively because you, you know what's going to happen. You know what the big picture is. But one who is incautious is moved and led astray. And that was our psalmist, almost. My treadings had well nigh slipped, but they didn't. What happened? Do you remember when we read the whole thing? What's the turning point for the psalm writer? I'm sorry, Louder? He goes into this temple. He goes into the sanctuary of God. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but in verse 6, he says, And this is the cause that they are so holden with pride. Holden. <laughs> it's interesting word that is no longer part of our vocabulary. So holding with pride and cruelty. Uh, I, I was just thinking of the places uh, in, in the Bible, as I mentioned, and, and boy, I, I could have picked any prophet and almost just closed my eyes and pointed somewhere. And th these are their concerns, pride and oppression. Here's Mary and her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination, see it? the imagination of their hearts. They think they see what's going on. Looks good to them through their eyes, but they don't know the reality. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and the meek. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Uh, we're fast beginning to run out of time here. Um, let, let me stop before we go any further, and let's just see if there's anything that we want to deal with, because a lot of information here today. That's a song. What is? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. The Magnificat of Mary, the Nunc Dimittis, the Song of Simeon, are that same pattern of Hebrew poetry in the New Testament. Yeah. Later on, uh, Saint Paul starts quoting some poetry, maybe some early Christian hymns, 
but they're Greek-derived, and they're a whole different kind of poetry from what we see here in Luke with uh, Mary uh, and, and, and Simeon in the temple. Uh, yeah? It's not scripture, but in the BCP, there's, there's a little Latin phrase at the beginning of each song. Again, it's not scripture, but do you know who put the, put the Latin in there? The Latin is usually simply the first, uh, first verse oh. in Latin. Oh, oh, oh. I think almost without exception, oh, if I'm you. not incorrect. It's always the first line in Latin. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Well, it's two or three minutes early, but I, I, I feel like this is the place to stop before we go any further. So uh, unless somebody else has some comments. Yes. Uh, way back when you started, uh, you talked about reformers, and you talked about how each group counted certain things and went down. And then you said that the Lutherans didn't go into this and drop that. That's right. Weren't the Lutherans reformers? The Lutherans are reformers. You have to be careful with the word reformed. When we use the word reformed in reference to church movements or theology, we're speaking of Calvin and his crowd. So you have the Lutherans and you have the reformed people. Reformed coming through Calvin. Uh, The Lutherans, uh, Luther is not trying so hard to get away from the Catholic Church as Calvin is doing. So he takes the old Catholic uh, chanted hymns that were sung to plain chant, and he turns them into metrical hymns. Right? Much more complex rhythms than what we saw here with just common, long, and short meter. But uh, A Mighty Fortress, um, some of our great Easter hymns uh, are really uh, translations of uh, long standing Roman Catholic hymns. And you know, you, you read Calvin's theology and you read Luther's theology. If not, you may disagree with me, but I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between the two. Calvin and, and uh, the Calvinists and the Lutherans could not get together on the Lord's Supper. But they were in agreement about so much else that it, it, it came so close to the Lutherans and Calvinists getting together and would have changed the history of Europe because there's constant wars in Europe between these various religious groups. So uh, they both want to stay in the Catholic Church. They're rejected by the Catholic Church and find themselves on the outside looking in. So they have no choice but to proceed uh, with what seems best in their own eyes (laughs) as they study scripture. And Calvin and Luther come up with very different ways of doing worship, but very similar theology. Luther in a different category than Calvin and the 
us know him. I just question, I went to the Lutheran church for a while. Yeah. I had to leave the Episcopal church and learned a lot about it and read about Luther. Um, I mean, everybody's got their problems. Oh, yeah. church government, too, that's the other thing. Uh, yeah. The way uh, Lutherans govern themselves and the way Presbyterians is significantly different. So there were areas where they just historically could never get together and have not to today been able to, to get together on those things. Gene? Would you suggest we read Psalm 73 every day until next week? Oh, yes, I would. <laughs> yeah. Would you yeah. comment on how the Anglicans fit into this? Yeah, uh, uh, the Anglican Church, of course, England. Henry VIII uh, wants to divorce his wife because she they're not able to bear children. The Pope says no. He says, okay, I'm going to form, I, I'm going to do it anyway. And so the Pope excommunicates, if I have the story correctly, the entire nation of England. And so you end up in England with basically the Catholic Church with Henry VIII in charge. Um, I don't know that we have time for this whole long saga. <laughs> but there's Henry and then there's his son who is even more Protestant than Henry was. He doesn't live long, he dies. Then Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, the Roman Catholic, uh, ascends the throne and the Protestants in England have to escape or be burned, or at least imprisoned. So they escape to Geneva and are strongly influenced by Calvin. And then after Mary's death, Elizabeth comes on the throne, England goes back to uh, Protestantism again, and those English leaders who were in Geneva come back with a strong reformed sense of worship, more so than a Lutheran sense of worship. Uh, and so for a long time in, in uh, England, you didn't sing hymns either. You only sang the Psalms and you sang them unaccompanied. And getting from that to where we are today was just a slow process of uh, gradual change. That's, that's a summary of a really long story. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs>